Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Chris Ravinas. I'm head of technology and change at Energy Aspects, and we're going to have a conversation today uh, about global supplies um, for oil and gas, and and particularly focusing in on upstream investment. I am joined uh, by uh, Varendra uh, Chohan, who is the head of upstream analysis for us at Energy Aspects, and then Richard Bronze, uh, who covers OPEC supplies. Welcome, gents. Uh, I'm assuming. Uh, uh, I'm assuming you can hear me and we're all good to go. Let's go ahead. Fantastic. Um, so uh, before I joined EA, I was uh, involved in upstream oil and gas working for a exploration and production company for, for over 10 years. And after every price crash that that we had there was always concern about capital uh, for for new projects and and replenishing supply uh, we we never really did find particularly after 2008 and 2014 we never did find a problem in in actually bringing on capital to 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 continue drilling but it feels different this time and and again we're hearing whispers about uh, uh, going up above a uh, hundred dollars a barrel uh, is it is it different now in terms of uh, in terms of of what's going on for supply? Yeah, uh, good question, Chris. Thank you for that. Um, I do think there is a substantial shift in um, both in the long term. So, like compared to say two thousand eight, two thousand and twelve, or even two thousand and fifteen, um, compared to where we are today, I think there's a number of factors coming together. Societal pressures seem to be one of them. If you're an exploration and production company, the cost of capital is certainly a lot higher than if you're a kind of new energy uh, company, such as a renewable company. And so um, that is certainly constraining um, the upstream. And I think the kind of pinnacle of, of all of that was we've just finished or are about to finish earnings seasons for the international oil companies, or, or maybe I should call them international energy companies today. Um, and like it, is, <laughs> it is very much, uh, you know, one of capital constraint. And, you know, there are going to be implications for this. Um, we see a supply crunch coming in the next uh, next few years. I, I think V's absolutely right. It's, you know, this is a, a cyclical industry. We will see ups and downs, but it feels like there's a structural change going on right now. Um, and that's going to have long term consequences on the supply side. Richard, in, in you know, uh, um, Varendra made that that comment about uh, oil companies wanting to sort of again address those societal concerns and want to sort of remake themselves as energy companies. Uh, what does that do for scaling in terms of their ability to pivot into those new sources of energy? Um, and 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 what does that do for uh, you know for for sort of that supply demand balance in terms of energy demand? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's easy with all the hype um, and all the talk around this energy transition to lose sight of the scale uh, and the importance of what IOCs and what the oil kind of and gas production side is doing every single day in terms of the volumes it's producing and the amount of investment and the amount of activity that's needed to maintain that. And I think that is a, a very well-established model for these companies. They've optimized, you know, they've used previous crashes to, to really try and cut out as much fat as possible. And what they're saying now is they're going to move incredibly rapidly. And it's understandable, you know, the ESG agenda, all of the public um, and all of the investor concerns um, and, and all of the political concerns around um, kind of climate change and so on. But to try and shift for these companies, um, given the scale they've got, 
into areas where they have far less experience and at a pace which they're setting out, I think is going to set up some real risks in terms of delivery and some risks in terms of where it leaves supply demand balance because demand is going to evolve and change. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in other uh, recordings. But I think on the supply side, the risk is we move too fast in terms of allowing supply to decline um, before peak demand has happened. And and I would imagine again that that we you know the 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 growing debt levels that I think you know a lot of the major upstream oil and gas players are are currently um, holding um, is also going to further constrain their ability to attract capital again to to play either side of that coin whether it's to to pivot into new uh, alternative energy products uh, uh, projects or or in fact just replenish uh, a traditional traditional oil and gas supply um, is is that is that a huge factor are banks uh, uh, playing uh, playing a role in this in terms of of the ability to to simultaneously meet the oil and gas demand uh, and then also pivot. Yeah, I'll take that one. I think uh, you're 100 percent right, and I think it's not only um, debt; it's the general finances of these companies. So it's the the cash flows from operations. Because you can remember, you speak to any um, energy company today, the kind of free cash flow that funds this transition still very much comes from oil and gas. Um, so that's one. And the second thing is um, you've got a scenario whereby, you know, the focus from investors is very much on um, uh, returns, is fix your balance sheet. It's, um, you know, buy back your shares. It's return investment uh, or competitive with other sectors, whether it's technology or any other industry, um, rather than grow your production. And I think that is another large kind of shift that we've seen over the last um, um, three to five years, I would say, the kind of growth for the sake of growth model is done. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think we saw that even this morning with Chesapeake uh, coming out of bankruptcy and, and and claiming, you know, that that it's a much leaner organization. Um, and, and so a lot of what you're talking about just reminds me of sort of U.S. shale and that that growth for growth's sake. Do you, do you see how, how how do we see shale uh, actually playing a role in in prices in in this sort of next round of 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 um, you know increased demand? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question because what the way the market often looks at um, shale is it's always kind of shale versus the rest of the world, whether that's Russia or whether that's Saudi Arabia or some other member of the uh, um, OPEC organization. But in reality, when, when we crunch our numbers, when we look at the demand trajectory, which has actually been supported by what a number of other companies are saying, Total, uh, BP, etc., um, you know, demand is going to continue rising. And so when we think about shale, it's not you know, how much is shale going to cap price? It's more uh, how much shale barrels are needed to kind of offset, you know, the lack of investment, the lack of exploration in the rest of the world. And so that's that's an interesting dynamic, which we don't think is um, appreciated by the market at the moment. And it's interesting, V, isn't it? The pivot over the last decade was really uh, a lot of these companies moving into shale, seeing it as attractive because it was short cycle, because they didn't have this long cycle where they might be investing during high oil prices only to uh, be producing when prices have collapsed. And shale was meant to solve all of that. And I think I think we're seeing 
Um, it, it just hasn't provided a kind of sustainable solution there, even though um, it's still got attractions and it is, you know, it is gradually going to make its way back up uh, from the lows that we saw in 2020. Yeah, I think um, one key difference between, say, the shale growth model of, say, 2012 to 2019 versus, say, the 2020 to 25 growth model for shale is that the operatorship has changed. So historically, it was these small mid caps, even large caps that, you know, they were given one incentive, grow your production, be the largest source of production growth, and that will be reflected in your share price. Now it's... um, international oil companies it's uh, large cap operators and the investment investors have given them a very very clear mandate do not grow your production do not grow capital spending and so what we're going to see from shale industry going forward is prudence and uh, um, essentially what the shale model of tomorrow looks like is one of flexibility so when the market needs uh, or when the market sends signals that um, the shale barrels are required, the oil price will go up and investment will follow. But in an environment like today where we're still on tenterhooks, it's very much capital discipline and returns focused value over growth. And and, ha- and and I'm assuming that the discoveries off the um, off the east coast of South America aren't going to be able to come online in any significant way to to somehow again um, uh, you know provide a different uh, focal point in terms of of, of supply um, in in the short term. How, how do you how do you how do you both see uh, South America playing out uh, in the in the short and medium term? Yeah, I mean, exploration cycles typically have anywhere between a five to 15 year lead time. And what the market has extrapolated is the COVID-19 demand destruction trends right out and saying 2019 was a peak of oil demand. So we see in a rising um, demand environment, um, supply is simply not going to be able to plug the gap. Now, as far as South America is concerned, I think where you're talking about, you know, whether it's offshore Colombia, um, or Guyana, which has just recently come online, these are kind of medium to long term stories. So five to 10 years out. And, um, we, we simply don't see the investments that are required to bring that resource online on the timescales required to meet demand. I think that's right. The attractiveness, especially of investing in big greenfield, there aren't that many of them. And what I think producers have learned is it's hugely expensive not only to develop the projects themselves, but all of the associated infrastructure. So say if you look to East Africa and Mozambique and the gas and LNG projects that are kind of underway uh, offshore there. It's a massive endeavor. And there are all these challenges from not having well-established infrastructure in place, not having maybe the political environment uh, stable. And I just don't see the appetite for that. What co- what companies are looking for is smaller infill projects, satellite projects, things with much lower risks. The other story, of course, with Latin America is Venezuela uh, collapsed. Um, I think, you know, the next few years, we see very little prospect of a turnaround. It's going to need a political change and then a huge amount of investment to bring production back. It's not um, something that can just switch back on over the medium to long term. Yes, the reserves are there. But again, will there be the appetite as and when politics allows for foreign companies to come back in and to rebuild Venezuela's kind of heavily depleted oil sector 
I think that's a real question mark um, and prices will have to incentivize it. And and I know we don't want to get too much into into geopolitics, but but uh, since since you said the word politics, um, the the Biden administration coming in, um, and and obviously uh, a bit of posturing around um, climate change and 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 pushing uh, pushing the renewables story. Do do you think the United States is serious about being a major player in in driving that uh, that pivot, um, or or is this a little bit more, or or is there going to be more investment? I I think in terms of energy security uh, in in more traditional sources such as oil and gas from from uh, from the new administration, maybe quietly. <laughs> I think it, I think the new administration is is serious about this. I think it would be wrong to just see this as a continuation of Obama era policies. Um, Biden's team is is being much more ambitious and aggressive. It is going to find uh, limitations on what it can do in terms of a very finely balanced Congress, which isn't going to pass big, ambitious legislative packages, and also courts, uh, which are maybe going to constrain regulatory action. But I think what we'll see is a lot of action on the demand side, energy efficiency, a push towards electrification and decarbonisation through the power sector and through uh, that side of the economy. I think on the supply side, we're seeing some constraint. It's going to uh, need a few months or even years to understand exactly how far um, beyond the kind of things like cancelling Keystone, uh, Excel, but into what are the real actions and how much additional cost and limitation do they place on uh, onshore and offshore production. But I think it just adds to that um, different environment for US shale in particular, one that's less kind of freewheeling and maximizing growth and one, as V, as v said earlier, that's much more about prudence. So, Richard, I think that, you know, talk about uh, talking about sort of where America's going and the and the Biden administration, obviously, it, it raises the issue of OPEC. And, and, and how do you see OPEC um, as we start to pull ourselves out of uh, of this covid crisis uh, and presumably demand begins to pick up? Uh, one would hope uh, at, at, a, at a significant pace uh, by by the second half of this year. How, how do you see how do you see the current situation in the Middle East and, and OPEC in particular? playing playing a role? Sure. Um, So looking beyond the current production constraints and the unwinding process, we think the Middle East is going to have to play, and OPEC in Africa as well, is going to have to play an increasing role in meeting the overall global demand. Um, So its market share, we think, is going to rise over the medium and the long term. But that's dependent on the ability of all these producers to develop and to produce at higher levels. Certainly, your Saudi Arabia's um, and the other GCC countries have well-established national oil companies. They've got the expertise. They've got the deep pockets to develop this, um, provided there's a market for the oil. I think when you look a bit wider, you're talking about countries like Iraq, Iran, which have kind of ongoing political risk and have much less experience in terms of their their domestic companies in developing big projects. They've relied a lot more on foreign investment, and that investment may not be as available in the future, as we've said. So I think the challenge will be, can these national oil companies step forward and develop and invest to the scale that it looks like the market's going to need because you aren't going to have masses of supply coming from other parts of the world. So I think OPEC is going to you know, benefit from some of these trends. 
Um, but I think they've got a challenge in terms of how they capitalize on this opportunity. Thanks for that. And and um, V, coming back to you, I mean, you've talked before about an obsession with demand and sort of this long-term, you know, 20-year 20, 20 horizon in terms of philosophizing about uh, about demand destruction. Um, and are we overlooking, again, the ability of, of supply to meet demand, um, you know, uh, certainly in the short term, but, but uh, and then stretching on into, into maybe even the midterm as well? Yeah, I think that's uh, 100% right. I think, uh, you know, we kind of uh, look at a COVID world and we look at recency in, um, in trends and kind of extrapolate those forward. So that's one of ample supply, whether it's from spare capacity in uh, um, Russia or Saudi Arabia or UAE or Kuwait. Um, we also look at like um, long-term trends such as the electric vehicle market and say, well, supply is only going to go in one direction and that's up and demand is only going to go in one direction and that's down. But the reality is and kind of history has shown that um, uh, these kind of deeply entrenched trends are, are difficult to kind of invert even with something like covid which we think is more a a temporary measure the reality is we're not going to have the world in some form of lockdown for the next two decades and so what that means is to for a large percentage of the population demand growth going forward is going to come from the non-oecd and uh, those guys will be traveling they will be using more energy and oil gas will play a role and therefore in an environment where the capital markets and investors are sending signals that the investment is not going to be forthcoming then i think we are sleepwalking into a kind of supply crunch we do think that oil moves into the 70s or 80s as early as next year but with kind of broader trends in the macro markets such as liquidity what's been hap what's happening in with the US Federal Reserve you know there's nothing stopping that the momentum pushing that all the way back to 100 which you know was unimaginable only six months ago yeah, absolutely. Well, mate, I hope you're absolutely right, at least about not being in some form of lockdown for the next 20 years, because I can't, I can't take it. Uh, gentlemen, I think that's about all the time that we've got. And, uh, and I really appreciate your time uh, and your insights. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see you on a, on a, on a podcast in the, in the near future.